Uh, well, friends, uh, some of you will have seen the movie The Imitation Game. Uh, hands up if you've seen The Imitation Game. Uh, many of us. Uh, it stars Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, who plays the role of the brilliant British mathematician and codebreaker William Turing, who was convicted of gross indecency with a male in 1952. Uh, Turing was offered the choice of either going to prison for his homosexuality or taking sex-suppressing hormones. He chose the latter, and tragically he died shortly after from cyanide poisoning. Now, fast forward half a century. In London, a Christian street preacher reportedly told a passerby that he believed that homosexuality was contrary to the word of God. Based on this report, the preacher was bundled into the back of a police van by three uniformed policemen. He was taken to the local police station. Police took fingerprints, a retinal scan and a DNA swab and locked him up for several hours before charging him with a public order offence. Uh, now, it's no secret that the Western world has undergone what you might call a revolution on issues of sexuality and gender issues, isn't it? Uh, homosexuality, which was once considered a crime uh, in the Western world, is, not, not, is, now, is now celebrated and affirmed and protected as something that is good. Traditional Judeo-Christian Judeo views of sex as belonging to heterosexual marriage, which was once unquestioned as the bedrock of society, is now considered outdated at best or evil at worst. But the surprising thing, I think, is the astonishing speed with which all this has happened. Uh, understandably, Christians are feeling bewildered. Uh, I don't know whether you... you uh, uh, feel this way at the moment. Many of us cannot understand how quickly things have changed and the complexity of the issues involved. Uh, many of us grew up uh, during a time when the Judeo-Christian view of sexuality was actually the majority view. But now we find ourselves firmly in the minority. And so we feel as though the rug has been pulled out from under us and we may not know quite how to respond to these changes. Uh, is that how you feel? Uh, further, uh, I think many Christians these days are beginning to feel guilty for holding on to the Bible's teaching on sexuality. Uh, is that true? One of the great successes of the LGBTI movement is that they have been able to tell a powerful story about human sexuality that has won the hearts of the rest of the world. Uh, it's no coincidence that many of the movies and sitcoms that shape our culture, uh, from uh, things like Sex in the City to Desperate Housewives to Modern, Day, uh, Modern Family, rather, are all written by gay writers who want to tell a particular story or narrative about the gay and lesbian sexuality. Uh, the LGBTI storytellers keep on, keep on telling a story of love and freedom and equity for all 
which are all those things that human beings cherish. And so over time, Christians can feel guilty because uh, we start to think that we are standing against people having love and freedom and equality. Indeed, many professing Christians have given up on the Bible's teaching on sexuality altogether, uh, I think for this very reason. And so uh, what is my aim for the next four weeks as we look at this topic of human sexuality? Uh, well, my, my aim is simply to tell the Bible story of sexuality and to show why it is a better story than the one that the world is telling us. Uh, today we're going to look at God's purpose for sex as it is revealed in creation. Uh, next week we'll be looking at sex in the light of the redemption that we have uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the following week, Joe will be taking us through what the Bible says about homosexuality. Um, and in the final week, we'll be looking at uh, what the Bible says about marriage and singleness. But uh, my aim is simply to tell the Bible story of sexuality. And uh, because the Bible's view of sexuality is deeply connected with the gospel, uh, I hope and pray that it will uh, expose sin and wrong ways of thinking, um, that it will comfort us who have failed in this area. Uh, and uh, let's face it, all of us uh, have failed sexually in one way or another, and that the gospel will also transform us so that we can live out this area of our lives in ways that please God, because we are convinced not only in our heads, but also in our hearts, that what God says to us is the best way to live. It is the better story. Uh, well, like all good stories, uh, it makes sense for us to start at the beginning, which in the Bible is the creation account that we've just read uh, in Genesis 1, uh, as well as Genesis chapter 2. Uh, it's important for us to start here because the creation account is foundational to our understanding uh, of God uh, and of ourselves and who we are as human beings. And uh, what these chapters lay out for us about sexuality and marriage are taken as foundational by the rest of the Bible, uh, and in particular the New Testament. And so uh, it's a good place to start. Uh, in particular, Genesis tells us of the creation of humanity in chapter 1, verse 27. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, have a look with me at chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, it says there, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Uh, now, I want you to notice uh, three foundational things uh, that are being said here. Uh, firstly, God creates humanity, as we've heard in the kids' talk. Uh, this is part of a bigger picture, of course, because if you zoom out from chapter 1, verse 27, you'll see that uh, there that God, in fact, creates the whole universe in all its diverse wonder. The point of Genesis is not to show us exactly how God created all these things, but it is to show that his word is powerfully sovereign in creating all things, and that his creation bears a particular purpose. Now, that's why God declares various things in his creation to be good. I don't know whether you noticed uh, as we read uh, chapter 1. 
You see, when each thing that God creates serves the purpose for which it was created, God says that it is good. Now, uh, when God says that some things are good in his creation and some things are bad, uh, it's not God simply imposing his arbitrary will on this creation. And so, for example, when God says in his word that faithful marriage is good and that adultery is bad, uh, it's not an arbitrary thing that God has just decided on the flip of a coin. It's not as though he could have said that adultery is good and faithful marriage is bad and for it to make no difference in this world. For you see, God has created the world in such a way that his ways uh, or his morality is stitched into the fabric of creation. And so what God calls good is really good and is for our benefit. And to do what God calls bad is really bad, not only in our relationship with God, but for ourselves and, and uh, others whom we are in relationship with. Now, I think this is especially the case when it comes to human sexuality, for to go against God's will for sex is to lead not to the good that uh, so many of uh, the secular storytellers tell us, but rather to harm. Secondly, notice that God creates humanity in his own image. Uh, what does it mean to be made in God's image? Uh, well, G uh, Genesis doesn't really dwell on the precise definition too much, but you can see there from verse 26, chapter 1, verse 26, that it has to do with exercising dominion over the world. It's about ruling the world, like God, but under God. Now, this is very striking because you may have noticed that God creates humanity on the same day, on the very same day, as the land animals, like livestock and creeping things and the beasts of the earth. Uh, in fact, uh, chapter 1, verses 24 to 31 uh, is, a, is a big block of, of Genesis 1 that describes the sixth day of creation. And you'll notice there that both animals and human beings are created on this day. And so, in many ways, we are like the other animals that have been created. Uh, it shouldn't surprise us, for example, uh, when we learn that we share 98% of the same DNA as chimpanzees. Although I'm sure my wife sometimes wonders whether that percentage is a little bit higher uh, in my case. But uh, there is a, a similarity in some ways, isn't there, between humanity and the animals. But at the same time, human beings are not the same as the other animals because we are created in the image of God with all the dignity that this entails. Uh, we are not simply the product of blind evolutionary forces with no inherent value. No, every human person, including you and me, are endowed with the extraordinary dignity and honour and worth of being made in God's image to rule the world under God's gracious word. But thirdly, notice that humanity in God's image is created male and female. Uh, although every human being is equally dignified, being created in the image of God, it's also true that God has created us in a binary way 
as male and as female. Um, and so being made in God's image requires both genders. Now, the idea that there are only two sexes uh, or genders, and uh, throughout the rest of this talk, I'll use those terms fairly interchangeably. Uh, the idea that there are only two sexes or genders has been relatively uncontroversial for most of human history. Uh, but I think it needs to be said, and it keeps, uh, uh, it, and it needs reminding for us, because in more modern times, it has become popular to think of gender as something that you choose for yourself. And so, for example, uh, if you have a look on your Facebook profile page, uh, you can now customize your gender by choosing from as many as 50 different genders. Uh, you can choose from the traditional categories of male and female, but you can also choose from categories like transgender, cisgender, gender fluid, uh, intersex, neither, and many more. Uh, why do some people think like this? Well, it's because many people think that gender is just a socially constructed thing rather than an objective thing that God has built into the world. And so if you think of gender as simply uh, a social con construct or something that society has just imposed on us, then it's possible to transition from one gender to another. And so if I am born uh, as a man or male, but deep inside I feel like the real me is actually female, then those who think this way will, will tell me that I can transition to my preferred gender uh, through various different means. Uh, perhaps if you're young, uh, young, young people are sometimes encouraged to take puberty blockers or, or other hormonal treatments or even gender reassignment surgery in order to transition from one gender to the next. Now, it is true to say, isn't it, that there are some elements of our masculinity or femininity that are socially constructed. And so, for example, uh, when my son Levi was born, um, I felt a bit odd that the nurses put a pink dummy in his mouth. And so all his baby photos have him sucking a pink dummy. But the idea that pink is a feminine colour and blue is a masculine colour, where did that come from? Well, I think it's just a socially constructed thing, isn't it? There's no objective reality to that. I know Matt wears pink shirts all the time and we're okay with that. <laughs> However, what God says here is that there is a real difference uh, for, to be made to be made male and female. Physically, there's a general difference. Psychologically, there's a general difference. And um, I don't know whether you're old enough to remember books like Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. Uh, people have made small fortunes from recognising these general differences. Um, not to mention the different roles that God sets out for us as, uh, as male and female in his word. 
In fact, today we celebrate Father's Day to thank God and to pray for our male fathers who have a particular role in leading, protecting and caring for families, whether that be our earthly families or our spiritual family at church. And so, you are either born a male or a female, and no matter how hard you try to transition into another gender, it just cannot be done. Now, I understand and sympathize with the small proportion of the population whose gender seems a little bit ambiguous at birth. Uh, some people are born a particular sex uh, in their chromosomal uh, structure and yet have the genitalia of the opposite sex. And for people like this, we need to affirm that they too are made in the image of God and that they also can live out God's purposes for them in this world. But we also need to recognize that the brokenness of this world as a result of uh, general human sinfulness affects every area of our lives in deep ways, including our biology. But in fact, uh, I want to suggest that God making us male and female is actually uh, really good news for us. Not only because it cuts through the confusion, but because it says that our sex, your sex, and your gender, and, and, and my sex and my gender, is a gift from God himself. It's not something that we achieve for ourselves. It's not something that we can construct for ourselves. But it is given by God so that as male and female, we can take part in God's purposes for this world. And this is particularly good news for those who struggle uh, or um, are, are often unhappy with their bodies and feel the pressure to look a certain way as a man or as a woman. God says that you are either male or female, and your gendered body is God's gift to you to be used for his purposes in this world. Do you believe this? But why is it that God created us male and female? I mean, why didn't he just create us all the same, like the earthworm? Why the difference? Well, perhaps the reason why God created us male and female in his image is so that we can have children within heterosexual marriage. That's what Monique was speaking about this morning. And I mean, there does seem to be a biblical rationale for this. Because in chapter 1, verse 28, chapter 1, verse 28 of Genesis, uh, after God creates man and woman, uh, it says there, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So it does seem, doesn't it, that the Bible speaks about having children or procreating or being fruitful and multiplying as one of the purposes for why God made us male and female. Biologically, you need a male and you need a female in order for humanity to survive and to flourish in this world. 
And yet, I want to say that having children as the primary reason, it is a reason, but having it as our primary reason for our sexual difference is problematic in the light of the rest of Scripture. For in the New Testament, there is a priority not on the biological family, but the spiritual family of God. Uh, do you remember in Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus is teaching the people and his uh, uh, mother and his brothers are waiting outside uh, wanting to speak to him. And what does Jesus say? He says, who is my brother? And who are my, who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, you may find it a little bit harsh that Jesus says that uh, in the hearing of his family. But in Jesus' mind, it's clearly the spiritual family that has priority over the biological, uh, which is good news, especially for those of us who are unable to have children. Uh, you know, in our congregations, uh, we have people who suffer greatly because of infertility or the inability to have children. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30 um, describes the anguish uh, of this uh, using images of a drought uh, and, and a raging bushfire. Uh, it says, it describes barrenness as the land that is never satisfied with water and the fire that never says enough. Further, in our congregations, there are single people who are wondering whether they will have children in the future, as well as people struggling with unwanted same-sex attraction for whom having children may never be a reality. And I think we need to recognize that these deep anguishes uh, are there and be mindful of how we can love our brothers and sisters who experience such pain in their lives. And yet, God says that having children is not the primary reason for his creation of humanity. And so if you struggle in this way, well, you have not missed out on God's ultimate purpose for your life. Well, if having children is not the primary reason for God making us male and female, then how about companionship? Is that the reason why God has made us male and female, so that uh, ultimately we can have companionship in marriage? Uh, again, there does seem to be some biblical support for this. And so uh, in Genesis 2, the, the story zooms in on the creation of man and woman uh, and the marriage of man and woman. And you'll notice there in chapter 2, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18, that it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, for many years, Christian pastors have taught that this is talking about loneliness before marriage. Uh, you know, God saw Adam sort of pining away in his loneliness in the garden. Uh, he needed a companion to uh, complete him and fulfill him. 
And so he decides to find a friend for him amongst the animals. And uh, because animals can't really fill that void, well, he decides to create Eve from one of Adam's ribs. And uh, their marriage together is the solution to to Adam's loneliness. Uh, When Adam breaks out into song in chapter 2, verse 23, where he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's like he's saying, you complete me. To take a line out of Tom Cruise in Jerry Maguire. However, if you read the text closely, you'll realize that this isn't what the passage actually says. For if you look uh, a few verses before at chapter 2, verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15, You'll see there that God puts Adam in the Garden of Eden and gives him the task of working it and keeping it. And so when God says that it is not good for Adam to be alone, uh, he's not primarily talking about his loneliness, but it's not good that Adam is alone because on his own he cannot do the task that God has given to him, you see, to work the garden and to keep the garden as God intended. Uh, He needs an equal who will help him in in this task, but someone who is different. Uh, Christopher Ashe is the English pastor and author who has helpfully pointed this out for us in in more recent times. But uh, I hope you can see there in the Bible that it's saying that marriage is not necessarily the only solution to loneliness. In fact, even though there is a great possibility of companionship in marriage, and that is one of God's gifts. There are many lonely married people in this world, let me tell you. Further, after the first marriage of Adam and Eve, there is the possibility of many other forms of companionship which help us to to feel complete and whole in our lives. Uh, Some of these are non-sexual relationships with members of the opposite sex. Uh, Father and daughter, for example. Mother and son. Brother and sister. Healthy Christian and non-Christian relationships and friendships with members of the opposite sex. Uh, Other relationships, uh, uh, non-sexual relationships, that is, uh, are with members of the same sex. Father and son. Mother and daughter brother and sister, uh, sorry, brother and brother, uh, sister and sister, uh, healthy Christian and non-Christian relationships with people of the same sex. And all these relationships provide companionship and are essential to our uh, feeling of completeness and wholeness in our lives. Uh, Now again, I know that it is often difficult for our single brothers and sisters who desire companionship in marriage, and uh, that is that is a deep pain for many of us. And uh, because companionship and sexuality within marriage is a good gift of God, uh, I think it's right to feel sad when we do not have these things, at least uh, perhaps for for a time, anyway. And uh, it's, the, it's right to feel sad in the same way that many married people often feel sad when they do not have 
the benefits of singleness, like time and freedom to do uh, things that married people perhaps can't do. And yet what God says is that real companionship is possible without necessarily finding one person of the opposite sex to complete us. But we'll talk more about marriage and singleness uh, further down the track. And so, uh, if having children is not the primary reason for God creating us male and female, and if companionship is not the primary reason for making us male and female, then what is the primary reason? Why has God created us in this binary way? Well, the overwhelmingly beautiful answer that the Bible gives is that God has made us male and female to help us to grasp the passionate nature of his love for his people, God's love for his people. I'll say that again. Uh, The answer that the Bible gives is that God has made us male and female to help us to grasp the passionate nature of God's love for his people. Now, you might find this a little bit strange, but just ponder with me how often the Bible uses the language of marriage and sex as a picture of God's love for his people. Uh, You don't have to look up these passages, but uh, just listen to them and uh, jot down the reference. Uh, In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. Uh, You'll find that in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5. Uh, Later on, Isaiah says, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Uh, Isaiah 62.5 You also have books like the Song of Songs, which is sort of like the sealed section uh, of the Bible. Uh, It describes the sexual love and romance between a man and a woman, but for most of the history of the church, uh, it has been rightly understood, I think, as a picture of God's passionate love for his people. Uh, In Ezekiel chapter 16 and Hosea chapters 1 to 3, uh, you see God using the human experience of heterosexual marriage and sex to describe God's love for his people, but also the horror of his people's unfaithfulness to him, which is described in very sexually explicit terms. Uh, When you get to the New Testament... You see John the Baptist describing Jesus as the bridegroom. And uh, Jesus uses this uh, description uh, to refer to himself as well. Uh, In Ephesians 5, which is the passage we read this morning, the Apostle Paul shows the great mystery of how uh, the human marriage between a husband and wife is actually patterned after an even greater marriage between Christ and the church. And even though the Bible begins with human marriage in Genesis 1, well, the story ultimately ends, doesn't it, with the great marriage, the ultimate marriage between Christ and his church at the end of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. For ultimately, the story of sex in the Bible is the story not merely of our human sexuality, 
but of God's great love for his wayward people. And Jesus' great love for his wayward bride in giving his own life for their sins so that their love might finally be consummated in the external ecstasy of heaven itself. You know, human marriages between husband and wife is a bit like a movie trailer. You know um, how film directors often put romantic scenes in movie trailers uh, to get you to want to see the movie? Well, God puts sex on this planet to give us a glimpse of what is to come so that we might want to go there. For the story of sex in the Bible is ultimately a pointer to the passionate love of God for sinful people like you and me so that we will desire this ultimate marriage in heaven over all things in our lives. Uh, Now, friends, I just want to finish by applying God's story of sex by uh, firstly speaking to our married couples. Uh, What we've seen this morning, I hope, is that God's purpose for your marriage and my marriage is that as we strive to live faithfully in marriage, it should display to the world something of God's passionate love in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you and I know that the temptation is often to be selfish and to be introverted and to be self-absorbed in our marriages. Uh, Often we are selfishly pursuing the things of this world for ourselves uh, and perhaps even for our children with little consideration of how we might use our marriages to display God's love to the people around us, uh, outside of our immediate vicinity of friends. And so the challenge of God's story of sex is, will you allow God's purpose for, uh, for sex and marriage to shape you? Will you invite others into your lives and however imperfectly, begin to work at putting on display God's passionate love for us in the gospel. Uh, Friends, I love it that some of you frequently invite our newcomers and uh, your non-Christian friends uh, into your lives, into your homes, to speak about God's love with them. Uh, I love it that many of you frequently invite our single brothers and sisters Uh, into your homes, to show God's love to them as you share your life with them. I love it that many of you continue to self-sacrificially serve us like the Lord Jesus uh, at church, in our church life, despite the many demands on your time. How wonderful it, it is when our married couples put on display God's love to others in these ways and uh, many other ways. As well. Now, uh, all of this may be quite painful for those of us who are single because everything I've said so far seems to revolve around marriage, doesn't it? But uh, I just want to say that just because you are single does not mean that you are not a sexual person. Uh, Just like all of us, God has made you a sexual person with sexual desires. And the temptation is often to express those sexual desires 
uh, in unhelpful ways uh, outside of heterosexual marriage, which is God's intended place for sex. And so when you struggle with your sexual desires in the, um, in the same way that many of us do, or perhaps all of us do, be reminded that these strong desires in our human sexuality uh, actually point to and give us a, gives us a glimpse of God's strong, persistent, uh, passionate love for us in the gospel. And let God's love for you strengthen you to live differently in this world, in your sexuality. For while earthly marriage displays the shape of God's love for his people between a husband and a wife, well, for faithful Christian singles, the way you display God's passionate love for his people is to find your sufficiency uh, in God's love for you. And it's as you find that God's love for you is what you need and is sufficient for you to live faithfully as a single person, perhaps for a time, then you will put on display just how great and wonderful that God's love for us really is. So will you do that? Let's pray together. Uh, Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of human sexuality that your word teaches us. We thank you that you have made us male and female as sexual beings and also for the gifts of marriage and singleness in which we are called to live out our sexuality. Uh, We thank you that unlike the world that sees sex as ultimate, uh, we thank you that your word teaches us that there is something even greater that our sexuality points to, which is your passionate love for us in the gospel. Now, Father, we ask that as we live as your people, whether in marriage or in singleness, uh, that you would help us to ultimately long for the marriage of Christ and the church to which we belong. And we pray that as we keep on learning from your word about our sexuality, that you would, by your spirit, continue to convince our hearts that your ways are the best ways so that we might live a life uh, in the privacy of our homes and bedrooms to the wider world around us that puts on display the gospel of your glorious love for us in Christ Jesus. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.